Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In the year leading up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the biggest scandals in American political history. This is scandal number 46, the Robert Potter duel. Duels always involve two proper mannerly gentlemen, and they start with a gentle slap across the face with a soft leather glove. They were an old-fashioned but civilized means of resolving a deadly feud, right? Wrong. The duelists we're discussing today were anything but prim nobles politely agreeing to pistols at ten paces. In the wild and woolly North Carolina of 1824, a couple of roughnecks took their squabble so far, it affected the entire state. Robert Potter, politician and frontiersman, lawyer and naval officer, was the ultimate sore loser. After failing in a House of Commons race, he challenged his opponent to a duel. At first, the two men seemed more interested in trading insults than blows. But when the feud ramped up, things got so heated in Halifax, North Carolina, that the borough was forced to cancel its election. Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Political Scandals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Political Scandals in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. To understand the kind of man Robert Potter was, you need to understand a few things about 19th century North Carolina. First and foremost, both violence and independence were enshrined in the local culture. 
North Carolina was one of the original 13 colonies, but it had a rougher road to statehood than the other 12. Several early attempts to colonize the area had failed. Finally, in 1640, a colony of migrants from Virginia took root. About 70 years later, between 1711 and 1712, the settlers of North Carolina fought the bloodiest of the state's colonial battles, the Tuscarora War. Basically, the Tuscarora tribe got tired of the settlers constantly violating their treaty agreements. So they staged a sneak attack and started killing off the colonists. Things got so bloody that North Carolina passed an emergency draft, conscripting every man between the ages of 16 and 60. That conflict became a core part of North Carolina's culture. The colonists were determined to be strong enough to fend for themselves. That's one reason why, on April 12, 1776, North Carolina was the first state to authorize its delegates to declare independence from Britain. That, of course, meant joining the Revolutionary War, which North Carolina did with fervor. Even after the British surrendered, a handful of loyal monarchists in North Carolina refused to give up and kept fighting with the Patriots. The conflict was later dubbed America's First Civil War. It took until 1782 for that violence to die out. By 1799, when Robert Potter was born, North Carolina was a sprawling rural state with no cities and few large towns. The survivors of the state's many conflicts were rough and ready people with strong opinions and a nose for trouble. It wasn't unusual for fisticuffs to break out after a political discussion. As for Robert Potter, like most of his contemporaries, he grew up as a farmer. Born in Granville County, near the epicenter of the Tuscarora War, young Robert tended the crops with his father Thomas. The War of 1812 broke out when Robert was 13 years old. It awakened in him the fighting spirit common to nearly all early North Carolinians. After Washington, D.C. was burned and looted in 1814, Robert resolved to serve his country. At the tender age of 15, Robert became a midshipman in the U.S. Navy. He went to sea eager to do battle against the world-famous British Navy. Disappointingly, in the same year he joined up, the War of 1812 ended. He stayed in the Navy for six years, but there wasn't much excitement and getting a promotion in peacetime was difficult. In 1821, he gave up and quit. He moved home to North Carolina and settled in Halifax on the banks of the Roanoke River. There were fewer than 200 people living in the borough and only about 17,000 in all of Halifax County. At age 21, Robert's new plan was to channel his frustrated lust for battle into a different arena. He intended to become a lawyer. Thomas Burgess, a Halifax attorney, took the young man under his wing. Robert expected to sail through the about two years of informal education required to practice law. Even though he left school at 15, Robert was well-read. He knew the classics of English literature and was already an accomplished orator. He often used those oratory skills to graphically insult anyone who offended him. 
There's a reason the old saying is, curse like a sailor. Robert soon began to practice law. His gift for colorful invective came in handy in the courtroom. In an early case, he brought an appeal to the North Carolina Supreme Court on behalf of a client who'd been denied his right to a jury trial. Robert put on an Oscar-worthy performance for the judge. He howled, monstrous, no jury. Why such a thing is destructive of human rights. Later, in a published brief, he compared advocates for juryless trials to a thousand idle bugbears. The state Supreme Court ruled against him, but the court of public opinion was with him. Despite losing the case, Robert became something of a folk hero. He used that reputation to work his way up the social ladder. For a while, he lived at the Groves, an opulent 10,000-acre plantation that housed several young lawyers. It served as a sort of informal law school for well-off junior attorneys. But Robert was more interested in the guests than the residents at the Groves. The luxurious mansion hosted elegant balls straight out of Gone with the Wind. With southern balls came southern bells. Robert became an expert at dancing and romancing. He wooed them all, from debutantes to married matrons. Robert considered the many enemies he made through his romantic conquests a benefit, not a drawback. His hot temper had evolved into a visceral need for conflict. He just plain wasn't happy if he wasn't in a violent feud. And where do you go if you love to fight and practicing law just isn't enough? Politics, of course. At the time, the United States was embroiled in conflict over how powerful the federal government should become. One major issue was the Bank of the United States, which the outspoken Senator Andrew Jackson opposed. Jackson believed that a strong federal government would serve only the interests of a privileged business class, not the common man. Of course, when Jackson spoke on behalf of the common man, he meant the common white man. He wasn't concerned about whether the government did right by women or people of color. But Robert Potter, as a white man born to a poor family, considered himself a Jacksonian Democrat. He used his position as an ever more prominent attorney to advocate for Jackson's views. Soon, it won him a small local following. Of course, he had his fair share of enemies, too. The political party system was going through a transition period, and at the moment, the Democratic-Republicans were the only party in existence. But there were a few different warring factions, the Jacksonians, like Robert Potter, the anti-Jacksonians, who generally believed the exact opposite, and the anti-Masons, a single-issue party that was built on opposing Freemasonry. The incumbent State House of Commons member from Halifax, Jesse A. Bynum, belonged to the anti-Jackson group. And as the 1824 election geared up, Robert Potter was rearing to take him down. There were only about 50 registered voters in Halifax at the time. That meant in order to win, all Robert would have to do is turn out 26 votes. But despite the small scale of the fight, the campaign was nasty and contentious. In other words, just how Robert liked it. After the break, 
Robert runs for office, nearly destroying Halifax in the process. Now back to the story. In 1824, hot-tempered 25-year-old lawyer Robert Potter ran for the North Carolina House of Commons as a Jacksonian Democrat. His opponent was the 27-year-old conservative Whig, Jesse Bynum. The voters of Halifax split into two factions, lining up behind either Bynum or Potter. And as the rivalry between the candidates grew more and more bitter, tensions between their supporters grew too. The two candidates were running on very different platforms, but voters seemed more interested in personality. Potter, the rash young lawyer with a fondness for trouble, attracted the rougher types in town. Bynum, who considered himself a gentleman, appealed to the more formal. Some say Potter had more than just political motivations for picking a fight with Bynum. There's a story that Bynum had refused to introduce Potter to a particular woman, presumably because he thought Potter would be a bad influence, which he notoriously was. But Potter took serious offense at the slight, serious enough to push him into electoral politics. After a bitter campaign filled with personal animosity, Halifax went to the polls on August 11, 1824. With only 50 voters in town, it didn't take long to count the ballots. By evening, it was announced that Jesse A. Bynum had won re-election. If anyone expected Robert to concede gracefully, they must have never met him. The hot-tempered attorney whipped out his pen and dashed off a letter to Bynum, which he sent the very next day. It read as follows. Sir, I forbore to chastise your insolence at the polls yesterday because I was unwilling to invoke my brave and devoted friends in the consequences of a quarrel with you. I understand you have renewed your vaporing today. Indeed, you appear to have a wonderful itching to riot in the van of mobs. This is to invite you to the field of combat. I cannot say that of honor. Your presence would deprive any spot of that character. You can choose your own weapon and distance. My friend Mr. Burgess will make the necessary arrangements with any person you may think proper for that purpose. I'll translate to modern English. You stole the election. I should have punched you then and there, but I didn't want my friends to get caught up in it. I hear you're still talking sh** about me today. So let's duel. I can't use the traditional term field of honor to describe the location because you are so dishonorable. Your choice on weapons and distance. Have your people call my people. Fighting words indeed. As for Mr. Burgess, that was Thomas Burgess, the attorney who had mentored Robert Potter. He was also the previous occupant of Bynum's House of Commons seat from 1821 to 1822. This challenge put Bynum in an awkward position. Dueling someone meant acknowledging them as an equal. Bynum had no interest in doing that. Not to mention, Robert's background in the military meant he might be a good shot. But refusing to fight at all would make Bynum a coward, which would be fatal to his reputation. After a little bit of thought, Jesse Bynum came up with the perfect reply. He refused to fight Potter on the grounds that he was not a gentleman. Bynum would, however, be willing to duel Thomas Burgess, Robert's second. 
Burgess was a gentle soul, known for his timid demeanor. That's quite possibly why he only lasted a year in office. As Bynum must have expected, Burgess refused to duel him. Robert Potter was absolutely not going to take this lying down. Now doubly insulted, he issued another challenge against Bynum's good friend, John R.J. Daniel. That offer, too, was rebuffed. It was beginning to look like there were no two men in all of Halifax willing to actually risk their lives over the local election. But by now, everyone in town had chosen a side. It was impossible to go anywhere or do anything without running into someone from the opposing faction. Arguments broke out even in church. A week after the original challenge on August 19th, Robert Potter tried again to pressure Bynum into dueling him. He posted a notice at the courthouse reading, Jesse A. Bynum has been called on to atone for his ungentlemanly conduct, and having refused satisfaction, I publish him as a poltroon and coward. Fighting words again, but Bynum would not be moved. If he dueled Potter now after so publicly refusing, it would destroy his reputation. There's an applicable proverb in politics, never wrestle with a pig, you both get dirty and the pig likes it. That quotation didn't become popular until the 20th century, but Jesse Bynum understood the principle. Throughout the fall and winter, the Potter and Bynum factions remained violently at odds. It was impossible for the two men to avoid seeing each other entirely in Halifax, especially since they still ran in the same social circles. In January of 1825, they even attended a party together. It turned violent pretty quickly when Potter accused Bynum of casually resting his hand on his shoulder. This, apparently, would have been quite the insult at the time. Or maybe Potter was just looking for any excuse to turn a party into a riot. The event immediately devolved into an all-out brawl. The two instigators left before things could get completely out of hand. But Bynum and two of his friends followed Potter home. Potter would later claim they were insulting and cursing him the whole time. Potter managed to catch a night's sleep, but the next morning, he headed for the local tavern, where he knew he'd find Bynum and his friends. Armed with a billy club, two guns, and a knife, Potter barged in and started brawling. His supporters followed suit. This time, Potter got the physical fight he was looking for. Potter himself was stabbed with a sword. Bynum was hit over the head and suffered a severe concussion. And after all that, the argument still wasn't over. Despite being impaled on a sword, Robert Potter refused to rest. He challenged Bynum's friend, John R.J. Daniel, to duel once again. And again, Daniel refused. The local courts got involved now that the quarrel had caused severe injuries on both sides. Bynum and Potter, along with their most rowdy supporters, were issued three-month peace bonds. These are basically temporary restraining orders that, if violated, carry a fine and a criminal penalty. History hasn't preserved copies of the peace bonds issued to Bynum and Potter, but the stated penalty was enough to keep them from openly fighting for the next three months. Unfortunately, a cool-down period wasn't enough to make the rivals into friends. 
Tensions continued to simmer under the surface. On June 24, 1825, Potter yet again challenged John R.J. Daniel to a duel. Apparently, he had totally given up on dueling Bynum himself. But yet again, no dice. Daniel preferred to be seen as a coward than to get involved in his friend's fight. Soon, Potter would have a chance to take the battle back to the polls. In those days, House of Commons elections were annual. With the August elections drawing near and both Bynum and Potter intending to run again, the courts intervened. It was clear that no matter who won or lost the election, there would be pandemonium in the streets. So the 1825 Halifax election was canceled entirely. Halifax declared that it simply wouldn't send a representative to the House of Commons that year. Both Bynum and Potter were sent home as losers. But that wouldn't be the last of the rivalry. After the break, we'll see who prevailed in the end. Now, back to the story. In 1825, Robert Potter and Jesse A. Bynum took their political rivalry so far that Potter was stabbed, Bynum was concussed, and the local election was canceled. Their supporters formed warring factions, tearing the small town of Halifax apart. A simple duel between Potter and Bynum might have ended the stalemate, but Bynum repeatedly refused to duel his opponent. Bynum did want to fight. He just wanted to use words, not pistols. He printed a searing pamphlet titled An Exposition of Potter's Misrepresentations to explain to the public why he refused the duel. Bynum haughtily declared that he would not sport his life away with a man like Potter. What happened next is what we now call the Streisand effect, when an attempt to hide a piece of news actually leads to the information spreading further. By drawing attention to his own repeated refusals to duel, Bynum only made himself look worse. It was one thing when Potter nailed up a flyer at the courthouse that called him a poltroon, and another thing entirely when Bynum published a brochure admitting to his own cowardice. After that, Bynum's support waned. The next year, in 1826, an election was actually held. Again, both men campaigned for the borough's House of Commons seat. And this time, Robert Potter was victorious. The poltroon was sent packing. Just as he'd been a horribly sore loser, Potter proved an awful winner, too. His ego wouldn't let him leave Bynum alone. Even while speaking on his proposal to create a public university, Potter couldn't resist riffing on Bynum a little. He called his former opponent a villain without character, a pimp, and a caterer to another who was himself a slave. The public university bill failed, probably because Potter spent more time thinking about his old feud than the actual issue at hand. A more reasonable person might have laid off at this point. Not Potter. He decided that the problem must be the format of his attacks. Nobody likes boring speeches. Instead, he would insult Bynum in verse. An 11-page epic poem, to be precise. If Robert Potter had the skills to back up his bravado, this might be remembered as history's first rap battle. Unfortunately, 
Potter was terrible. Here's a sample. A peacock knight whose shabby feet have shown how quick when pressed he lays his honors down. It gets worse. When the subject of the poem turns to Potter himself in the final stanzas, he writes of Halifax's residence. They could no more his thoughts or feelings scan, or estimate the force of his designs, or understand the nature of his plan, than the dim mole, the sun, when brightest shines. In other words, Potter was playing four-dimensional chess, and his rivals were playing checkers. To prove his disdain with the locals, he also used the poem to announce his intent to leave Halifax. At age 27, he moved back to his birthplace of Granville County, married a woman named Isabella Taylor, and started planning his big comeback. Meanwhile, buoyed by his rival's constant need to spread his name, Jesse A. Bynum announced a campaign for U.S. Congress. In the fall of 1832, he won. However, to gain enough support to be elected, he was forced to rebrand as a Jacksonian Democrat. It was Robert Potter's anti-federal policies he carried to the House floor, not his own. Once in Washington, Bynum promptly proved his mettle by dueling another congressman. He was no poltroon after all. He just wouldn't deign to fight with Robert Potter. But it was Potter that got the last laugh. In 1829, he beat Bynum to Congress, representing Granville County's district. This time, the political winds were in Potter's favor. That same year, Andrew Jackson began his term in the White House, and the era of Jacksonian democracy was in full swing. One of Potter's first initiatives in Congress was to legislate the National Bank out of existence by declaring it unconstitutional. The bill failed, marking the start of Potter's career as a not very effective congressman. Never one to leave well enough alone, Potter needed an enemy to focus his frustrations on. Now that Bynum was a fellow Jacksonian, he couldn't very well keep badgering his old rival. He had to find a new target, and he went searching in his new wife's family tree. Potter became convinced that his wife Isabella was cheating on him with two of her own cousins. One was a 50-something minister, Lewis Taylor. The other was a 17-year-old, Lewis Wiley. Of course, it's highly unlikely that Isabella was both sneaking with the deacon and hitting the hay with her teen cousin. Potter was just so convinced everyone was out to get him he couldn't even trust his own in-laws. So, in a sedate, calm, and reasonable manner, Robert Potter filed for divorce, suggesting joint custody and an equitable division of assets. That doesn't sound very much like the Robert Potter we know. Of course not. I was just kidding. On Sunday, August 28, 1831, Potter invited cousin number one, Lewis Taylor, to his home. When the middle-aged Methodist minister arrived, Potter accused him of adultery. After verbally abusing the older man for a while, Potter castrated him. A contemporary account in the South Atlantic Quarterly claims that Potter put the minister to bed afterwards, telling him to keep his mouth shut about the attack. Then he left him there for Mrs. Potter to find and proceeded in search of cousin number two. 
Finding 17-year-old Lewis Wiley at home outside Oxford, Potter gave him the same treatment as the minister. Potter ordered both his victims to keep quiet, and he seems to have thought they'd be motivated by shame to do so. After all, nobody really wants to testify in court about their own castration. But nobody wants to watch their attacker go back to Congress as if nothing happened either. The two victims both went to the authorities, and Potter was duly arrested and charged with mayhem for his attack on Wiley. The judge decided to wait to determine the charge for Taylor's assault, because if the minister died, it would become a murder. Facing a six-month jail sentence and possible murder charges, in November of 1831, Potter resigned his seat in Congress. So ended his tumultuous congressional career and soon his marriage. In spite of his total lack of legislative achievement, Potter did leave at least one brief legacy. For a time, North Carolinians referred to the act of violent castration as potterizing, as in, I'm so angry, I'd like to potterize him. Ultimately, both victims survived and Potter served his time in jail. In March of 1834, at 34 years old, he became a free man. But not a changed man. His later years were marked by the same scandals and rivalries as his early ones. Just months after walking out of jail, Potter returned to politics. His violence had only made certain supporters love him more. Despite an attempt by his now ex-brother-in-law to assassinate him during the election, Potter retook a House of Commons seat in 1834. By January 2nd of the next year, he was expelled from the House over allegations he had cheated at cards and brandished a pistol to avoid paying his gambling debts. After that embarrassment, Potter emigrated to Texas just in time to join the Texas Revolution. For a brief period in the 1830s, Texas became an independent country and Potter was appointed the first Secretary of the Navy. But by 1836, he retired over a disagreement with Texas President Sam Houston. Finally, Potter returned to private life as a farmer and lawyer. He built a home on the shores of Caddo Lake and at least temporarily absented himself from political life. He lived fairly quietly until 1842, when an ongoing feud with a neighbor once again erupted into violence. The neighbor, William Pinckney Rose, was allegedly a career criminal, at least according to Potter. On March 1st, Potter tried to arrest Rose on charges of murder. The next day, Rose showed up at Potter's house to retaliate. He was accompanied by several armed men. Outnumbered, Potter dove into Caddo Lake and tried to escape by swimming underwater. But even the most agile swimmer has to come up for air eventually. When Potter did, one of the gang shot him in the head. Live by the feud, die by the feud. Robert Potter had seen more in his 42 years than most people see in a hundred. Potter is still remembered in both Texas and North Carolina, but less for any particular accomplishment than for his outrageous character, which spawned a handful of folk songs. 
but his story puts a unique human face on the lawless culture of the American frontier and helps explain why it was so difficult to establish order there. With truly shameless villains like Robert Potter around, good people have to work twice as hard to get anything done. It's one thing to deal with a politician who causes a scandal, apologizes, resigns, and goes on his merry way. But when there's a wild, rip-roaring scandal, and the person at the center of it truly doesn't think he's done anything wrong, well, sometimes the whole town gets caught up in a brawl. Thanks for listening to Political Scandals. We'll be back next week with scandal number 45. Randy Duke Cunningham, who is possibly history's most corrupt congressman. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Political Scandals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Political Scandals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Political Scandals was written by Yelena War with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Richard Rossner and Kate Leonard. <laughs>